Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Aaron Bond here. Um, so this past weekend, I was back home in Indiana, and of course, every time I'm back home, I try to see all of my friends, had a good time, and I'll talk about that a little later, but I also met up with probably one of my oldest friends, if not my oldest friend entirely, which is Matt, and uh, that's Matt of Matt and Chad, or Mad Chat with Matt and Chad. It's also Matt of Rancor's Brothel, both of which are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, and we sat down and we shot the shit for a while, and it was a lot of really good conversation, a lot of great catching up. Um, but then he noted, you know, he had finally listened to my podcast, and uh, a couple other people have as well, and I'm really excited about that, thanks to all the listeners. But he said that my podcast sounds like an NPR radio show, and then he quickly corrected himself, but a good one, which I thought was kind of funny, since I'm such an NPR fan. I'm like, what are the bad ones? But... You know, I, I don't know if he knows how good a compliment that really is, because a lot of my podcasting is actually inspired by things like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for, like, the humor styles, or maybe, uh, you know, at some point if I decide to do bantering back and forth, I'd want to do it kind of car talk style. So it, it was a really big compliment, and I think that it's inspired me to do a lot of interesting things or at least continue doing what I'm doing, because I know my voice at least sounds, you know, good enough to be compared to that. Maybe not be on that, but be compared to it. So, I just wanted to thank Matt for that, and here we go. other shows this week on the podcast we choose a theme bring you a bunch of content unrelated to that theme this week do i sound like an npr show our show today in three acts act one shout outs and other things of the week act two news both personal and private and act three reviews of technology movies video games and other stuff we have a really great show for you this week stay with us Shoutouts and stuff of the week. As you know, Matt has already had his shoutout for this week. Um, I also wanted to give a shoutout quickly to Crystal Wolf. She was the first one to get the quotation from last week. Last week was from um, Hudson Hawk. So congratulations to her. She has a podcast as well, which I've mentioned here pretty much every show so far. That's uh, Chris and Chris Take Over the World. You can find it at christhewolf.com when Chris is spelled with a Y. Um, so shout out to her. Congratulations on getting that. I've got an even more challenging one this week. Um, also wanted to give a shout out to my dad and my sister Angie. Um, my mom's been kind of sick and with the help of those two, we were finally able to get convinced mom to go to the doctor and hopefully she'll be feeling better soon. But I just have some really great family members out there and I just wanted to give a shout out to them for you know, getting together with me and making certain that that happens, you know, for, you know, the good of mom and making certain that she gets better. So a quick shout out to my pretty awesome dad and my pretty awesome sister. So stuff of the week this week, uh, frivolous pet services of the week. I don't know if anybody remembers this from back in the day, but uh, this was something that was in the news briefly back when I was in college. Uh, and I still can't figure out if it's just a really brilliant scam or something that's actually started up in earnest. But that was Eternal Earthbound Pets. I think you can find it at eternalearthboundpets.com, or if I'm wrong, just Google those three words and you'll find it. And the premise is this. It's a bunch of atheists who agree to take care of your dog or cat because, you know, since they can't be baptized, well, I suppose you could baptize animals. I'm not sure if they have the 
mental wherewithal to understand what's happening with it. Um, and because they can't, you know, verbally accept Jesus into their heart, if the uh, rapture were to happen, the theory goes these pets might risk being left behind. And uh, if anybody has read the LaHaye novels, nothing good happens to anybody who's left behind. So what Eternal Earthbound Pets agrees to do is you pay them a certain amount up front and leave a house key with them. And if the rapture happens, since they are atheists, they are guaranteed to stay on Earth. They're just going to stay there. They will go to your house and they will take care of your dog or cat. They will adopt all of these animals that they've been paid for. I don't remember exactly what the price was on the website, but the thing was, in the FAQ, they sounded like they were very serious about this. And I I just have a hard time figuring out if these are people who are trying to make a quick buck off somebody who has a really you know, different idea about the world than they do, or if they're actually saying, you know, we have a belief about the world, it may be wrong, and we can provide you a service if you happen to be right. So, I thought it was an interesting idea. So it's either evil genius or one of the more unusual services I've ever seen out there. Um, Nostalgic advertising of the week? I'm just going to let this speak for itself. Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a happy meal, McNuggets, tasty golden fresh fries, regular or larger size, a salad, chef or garden, or a chicken salad, oriental, big big breakfast, egg McMuffin, hot hot cakes and sausage, maybe biscuits, bacon, egg and cheese or sausage, Danish hash from soon for dessert, hot apple pies and Sunday three varieties of salsa, corn, three kinds of shakes and chocolate, Egypt cookies, and a drink of Coca-Cola, diet coke and orange, drink a Sprite and coffee, decaf, two, a love that milk, also an orange juice, I love McDonald's, good time, great taste, and I get this all at one place. Got it? Do you got it? That was the McDonald's menu song. It was actually distributed via phonograph record inside newspapers in the late 80s, I believe. It was a little square record, actually, with a round groove on the inside of it. And throughout the record, they try and teach this crowd how to sing that crazy-ass song, which essentially is indoctrination into, you know, the Big Mac Nation forever. Um... Naturally, as a kid, uh, unknowing about advertising as I was, I thought it was awesome and tried to learn it myself. Uh, mine was not a winner. Uh, I don't know of any that was any of them that were winners. In fact, I even tried to find the audio from the winning record where they actually learned the song at the end, and I have been very unsuccessful in doing this. And for anybody else who's trying to remember exactly where in time, uh, here was their common jingle of that era. Ah, my obese capitalist heart explodes with nostalgia, or possibly cardiovascular disease. But seriously, does anybody want a Big Mac right now? Other stuff of the week! Um, The word of the week is elucidate. Um, And also, I want to make a quick note about the word of the week before I move on. A certain podcast with Ira Glass this past week when they were talking about uh, patents and the dangers of patents, which is a really good one, by the way, you should listen to it, Uh, They use the word avuncular. It just jumped right out at me. So I'm just going to take that to mean that Ira Glass is a huge Bad Brain Curio Shop fan. So uh, thanks for listening, Ira. And, uh, you know, good work on your podcast as well. You've got a few up on me. That's cool. That's cool. Anyway, elucidate. Elucidate actually means to bring light to in terms of explanation. So if I were to elucidate a topic, it would be something you don't quite understand, but I provide the context and the information necessary for you to completely and fully understand the topic as it was meant to be understood. So that's the stuff of the week. Act 2, news, both personal and private. Um, Some personal stories. Uh, Moving continues to suck, but we're plotting on through it. We've had more cat stories this week because uh, we've had a great escape. Turns out uh, Adrian's cat, Smokey, is a bit of a Houdini. So one morning she's getting ready and she goes off to work and she lets me know, oh, by the way, could you water the cats for me? Um, Which, by the way, don't do the same way you water plants. They get very angry. Uh, But anyway, 
after putting food and water in Smokey's bowl, he has two little tags on him. And normally we can hear him wandering around the house. I didn't hear anything, and I thought that was a little bit strange. So I started looking around. And even with our house just full of boxes, because we're in the middle of a move process, he's usually fairly easy to find, and he usually comes to you, because he likes people a whole lot. I couldn't find him anywhere. And then I went into the kitchen, where we had been cooking the night before, and I don't have a hood over my stove, so I usually leave one of the windows cracked. Looked over at the window, and there is a smoky size hole in the window screen. So he had jumped up, jumped into that window screen, and pushed what was probably a little bit torn already. He tore it fully enough that he could escape. So I immediately called Adrian and had her come back, because I didn't know where he was. I was panicking. I was afraid that he, you know, if he'd been out all night, we have no idea. We, we would just have no chance of finding him. Uh, luckily, I found him under the porch. We have a little bit of a crawl space back there. Mad as hell. He was, he was just really, really, really pissed off. Um, would not come to me for anything, which is a little unusual. He and I get along really, really well. But Adrian came by, um, and he sort of went to her, but would not come out from under the porch. So she bribed him out with a little bit of uh, catnip, because he's a bit of a fiend. We brought him inside, set him on the floor, and uh, watched him walk to see if he was doing okay. He seemed fine, so we went to work. We came back home that night, and I noticed he didn't come to me at the door, which, again, a little bit strange. I saw him on the couch just sort of laying there. Um, But what was really strange was when Adrian came home, because he always comes to her. He just looked up and sort of looked at her and then looked back down. Um, And Adrian made a good point. She was like, he could be sick, or he could be really tired. He doesn't normally have wild nights. You know, he looks a little bit like a guy who made some bad decisions. But as the night wore on, we got more and more worried about him. Um, There was a spot on his back where he wouldn't let anybody touch, which is very unusual. He normally likes to be petted all the way down. And there's just a spot on, like, his back hip where if you got anywhere near there, he would get frustrated with you. And it felt a little bit swollen. So we took him into the vet, and he seems to be fine. We think that he got a bit by a cat. There is a bite mark back there. Um, and cat bites are apparently awful with bacteria. Just awful. So he was swollen up. He had a high fever. Um, so they gave him some antibiotics. They gave him some pain medicine, and they kind of sent us home with him. But what they didn't tell us was the pain medicine and the... Uh, the uh, uh, anesthesia that they'd used on him was going to make him drool. And when I say drool, I didn't know cats could drool like this. I mean, this was like Marmaduke strings of creamy white drool just like dangling everywhere. And he just wandered around the house drooling continuously. Uh, They also recommended that we keep him strictly quarantined away from human beings and other animals for six months, which we both kind of agree is a ridiculous amount of time to lock a cat in a cage. So what we've done for now, while he, you know, gets better and also, you know, he's able to sweat out any symptoms that he might have, he's staying with Adrian's mom, but that's only going to be for a few weeks. We don't think it makes sense to (laughs) to put a cat away for six months just because they decided to get out and may have gotten in a tussle with the other cat. So, yay! But, you know, the cat adventures continue. The thing that's kind of a bummer about this is it seemed like... I wouldn't say that Diogenes and Smokey were getting along, per se, but the noises that you heard in the last podcast were getting more and more scarce. They would still hiss at each other as they walked by, but they wouldn't specifically walk up to each other in order to hiss at each other. They would just sort of make it known, hey, by the way, I don't like you here. I'm not going to do anything about it, but I don't like you here. And, you know, Adrian and I both kind of worry that maybe we'll revert back to those first few days. But to be fair, it was only a few days before they had chilled out, so it's not that big a deal. Um... We'll just have to keep an eye on open windows. That was a little bit freaky. Um, Also, as mentioned, uh, went down to uh, Indiana this past week. 
that was a lot of fun. Um, saw some great people, and I just wanted to thank everybody for coming out. Um, you know, we went out, we went down to Bloomington. I haven't been back to Bloomington in two or three years. I used to go every year because General Mills had a recruiting um, opportunity down there, and we haven't found as many candidates as we needed to continue justifying going to the campus because it's a bit of an expensive flight. And because of that, you know, I hadn't been back in a while, plus I don't work there anymore. So it was good to see good to see the old school. It was good to see Bloomington. It's still, I think, one of my favorite little towns uh, in Indiana. I just there's just so much great stuff in Bloomington. So we went there first. I showed them a little bit around campus and around the uh, two kind of neat cemeteries. Indiana University has a couple of interesting deed notations. If you ever talk to a tour guide, they'll show them to you. Um, There are two small, very, very old cemeteries just smack dab in the middle of campus. One is right outside a dormitory and one is right outside the student union. And those are places of rest of the family that originally owned the land. From what I understand, the deed had a couple of other stipulations. Uh, One was that if the university, that time the seminary, but it eventually became the university, cut down any trees in the area, they had to plant two, which is part of the reason Indiana University is so forested right now. And uh, the other thing is there is one tree they were never allowed to cut down, which is usually referred to by the students as the sweetheart's tree, the Sweetheart's Tree has a carving of two of the early progenitors of the Dunn family, you know, progressing their, professing their love in a way that only tree bark can. And because of the location of the tree and because of the land around it, they wanted to use it. So they actually built the chemistry building encompassing this tree. There's a nice courtyard in the center of the building where a tree just goes grows straight through the building. Um, so it was cool to see that. It was cool to you know, kind of relive the college days of meandering around the campus. Um, Then we went to Nashville, Indiana. And for the folks who live in Indiana, if you've never been down to Nashville, if you've never um, just taken a, like, weekend trip down there, it is a really neat little spot. It's an artist colony. And because of that, there are all of these artisan shops and restaurants and little, like, bed and breakfast areas. I don't know if I've ever seen more than maybe a third of it because you can waste days down there just meandering from shop to shop so um if you ever just want a nice weekend getaway nashville if it's within driving distance from you obviously minnesota folks you know sorry but we have lots of stuff like this too but you know nashville's a great destination so That was a really great time. Also got to have my steak and shake, something that we don't have here in Minnesota, and I lament every time I come back. Uh, We also got our Kroger dip, because I am a huge fan of the uh, Kroger French onion dip. They have excellent dairy there, and they don't have Kroger's out here, so I haven't had it in a while. And when I'm really wanting to treat myself if I'm home, I get some Mike Sells potato chips. That's also a local brand and some uh, Kroger brand French onion dip, and we sit down and we watch a movie. And this week, with my folks, we watched uh, Django, which I will definitely talk about once we get to that point. But all around, really good visit. Um, Really glad I got to see anybody. Anybody I missed. um, The way I kind of played this one is I didn't tell a lot of people because some of the time was reunion time. We have a white elephant auction at the reunion, which is always fun. We used to do a fish fry, but I kind of, I I think they've decided not to do that anymore, which makes me sad because it was always really good eating, but the white elephant auction is one of the more entertaining aspects of my family reunion, so when we go out there, we bring our junk, usually junk we've bought at one of the previous reunions, and people bid money on it, and it's a really fun way to kind of raise money for the family reunion and to pay for the shelter and pay for the software to keep track of all of us and all of that stuff without having to ask for donations. It's a lot less boring than that. Plus, you can get rid of some of your shit if you just want to get rid of some of your shit. So, good times. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, anybody I missed, it, since it's a family time, I didn't tell a lot of people. 
um, and was just going to see who was available at the time and kind of do it lottery-wise that way. I figured that's fairest. So I'm thinking about coming back down again later this summer. I don't want to say when yet because that depends on a whole number of different factors, but um, if I didn't see you and you want to see me, get a hold of me, let me know, um, and I'll try and keep you in the loop the next time I come down. So that was uh, all I had on a personal level. Um, World and U.S. news, the only thing I've really got here is uh, the NSA stuff. And I just want to talk briefly about this. My, my opinion on this might be surprising to some of my friends because I'm so very privacy-oriented. A, um, the fact that the NSA is looking at all of our records does not surprise me one single bit. Um, I mean, not a single bit. B, the other thing to remember, and I agree that we should be having more oversight from Congress on this. Congress should know more about it. We should be taking more time to review what they're doing to make certain that they aren't encroaching on the um, on uh, undue search and seizure. But by the same token, something to remember is if they record metadata from every phone call that is made, it's kind of like, okay, well, they recorded audio from the middle of Times Square from 5,000 feet. That's great. If they can't hear what they're really looking for, you're going to get lost in a crowd. So while I do have a lot of very significant privacy concerns with the NSA stuff, we do have a little bit of privacy in the fact that the data set they seem to be collecting is so large that the chance of them finding any one voice in it without other things that brings that up uh, would be really difficult. That doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't either A, change it, or B, at least give us more oversight into what they're doing. But I don't personally feel threatened by it because... Unless there are other factors that bring me to their attention, they're never going to hear anything that I say because it's too much other shit going on for them to care about. Now, on the flip side of that, and what the privacy advocates are saying, which is also true, is if anybody ever wanted to target me specifically for any reason who has access to that information, they could. They suddenly have a lot of information on me that might be useful for any number of reasons. A lot of social engineering, identity theft kind of stuff could happen because of that. NSA is probably not going to get hacked, but that doesn't mean that all of their employees are, you know, 100% scrupulous. No ones are. Um, and by that token, you know, there's a lot of distrust in the government out there, and that's not necessarily unfounded. So the fact that they know all of that information doesn't make me feel like they're going to immediately threaten any, like, standard American person in the public. But I can see the concern about how if, for some reason, I came under the eyes of the government, there's all this information that really isn't any of their business that they have access to, and they could choose to use however they decide to use it. So, um... This kind of boils down to why we never should have had the Patriot Act to begin with. I, I honestly feel like the Patriot Act and the whole NSA dragnet search is part of the end goal of 9-11. I think 9-11 was to strike fear in the hearts and the minds of Americans and make the government turn on them. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this somewhat does that. Now... It's certainly no major victory for terrorism. I, I'm never going to say that, because that's foolish. We are still the freest nation in the world, and we still enjoy freedoms that people in many parts of the world could never even dream of. Um, but that said, you know, we should always be vigilant about eroding freedoms, and this is a place where erosion, even on a minor scale, has been happening. So... That's definitely something that we want to tackle. We, I hope that the that Congress pushes forth um, 
that the secret court that authorized all of this release its documents, that's something that has been proposed, and I hope that that goes through. Because I don't see the harm in knowing what they're collecting, uh, unless there is harm in what they're collecting, in which case we should know about it anyway. So, yeah, that's kind of where I stand on the whole NSA Patriot Act thing. Um, I'm not going to panic about it. I'm certainly not going to change my behavior about it, but part of that is my behavior on the internet has always been the idea that, you know, I will A, check your privacy policy, and B, anything I post out there, I'm going to make certain it's not something I wouldn't want, you know, my closest friend, my oldest relative, my, you know, worst enemy, any of those people to have hold of. So my behavior was already pretty paranoid as it stands, so I'm not really afraid of the NSA finding something because I posted it on the internet or because I said it in a phone call. But on on that somber note, Act 3 of our program, where I talk about video games, technology, and movies, um, to start out with some video games, Matt pointed out to me that I screwed up last time, um... I had mentioned when I was talking about Final Fantasy VI that it was one of the first games where I felt a really emotional tie to the characters. And I guess what I would say is that is true if I add the word um, continuously. I was invested in all of the characters through all of the game. Um, But he is correct to point out that in Final Fantasy IV, I thought there was this incredibly sad moment, and it was sort of the first time barring Celeste, which I think was just... Celeste was the one I mentioned last time where she, after the end of the world, uh, threw herself off a cliff. That was so jarring for me that I think it overshadowed this, but this was pretty sad, too. Um, In Final Fantasy IV, uh, at one point you have two little kid mages following you around and helping you on your quests. Their names are Palam and Porum. And... As you're attempting to walk out of a castle after a victorious battle with this very, very evil fiend, you walk through a narrow pathway, and all of a sudden both doors lock, and the uh, walls start to slide inward towards you, threatening to crush you. Palam and Porum both say to Cecil, the leader of the group, um, you know, it's been a pleasure servicing, or servicing you, haha, serving with you, um, and we're really glad that we've had this opportunity. And then they both stand against the wall, bracing themselves as much as they can, and turn themselves to stone to stop the walls from moving. Um, because they cast a spell of their own um, of their own volition, any kind of standard healing potions or other stuff in the game that would normally resolve this issue doesn't work. So that was a deeply sad moment, because those are really lovable characters, and the fact that they were just children. Um, And that struck me really, really hard as a younger kid. So, Matt was right. Um, That was sort of the first, like, deep emotional connection. It just wasn't as strong, I think, as the character development in Final Fantasy VI, which I think outshined Final Fantasy IV, but that doesn't mean Final Fantasy IV wasn't amazing for its time, also. Um, another game I've been looking at uh, or I've played all the way through at this point that I got from the Humble Indie Bundle by the way if any of you haven't learned about the Humble Indie Bundle it's something that cool that you can kind of check out it's a bundle of indie games I think they've done 8 or 9 of them now they're completely cross platform capable so you can run them on Linux you can run them on Mac you can run them on Windows you can run them wherever you want And there's no digital rights management attached whatsoever. So if you want to run them on five different machines, go right ahead. Um, But they'll package four or five of these games every few months. And then it's a pay what you think is fair. Now they'll add incentives. So there might be two games that are really popular indie titles, and you have to pay over the average to get those. But over the average means, like, I think with this one it was over six bucks. So, not a big deal. Um, And they also give to charity. They give to uh, this charity that helps children. So, 
it's a really cool thing to do. You can decide how to split the money that you put in. You can put in as little or as much as you want. And you get some really interesting games from it. But the last one uh, came with a game that I, I feel like mentioning here just because it was so weird. And it was called Little Inferno. And Little Inferno is this kind of strange sandboxy style game where and it's really dead simple you have a catalog and you can order varying things toys housewares etc and then once you get them your main screen is just a fireplace and you set these things on fire and different things will happen and you can make certain combinations like it'll give you hints about if you burn these two things together something cool might happen but otherwise, they don't give you a whole lot of information about why you're doing this other than, ooh, fire is kind of cool. Uh, so much so, I think, that in the beginning, they actually say, by the way, don't set things on fire. And I think that they put that in there just in case, you know, someone really decides, ah, I'm going to make my own little inferno at home. Um, what was weird about this game was that throughout, they kept cutting into the game with a couple of characters. There's the weatherman. And the weatherman is a guy who soars over the city in a weather balloon, who's kind of indicating, I think, an environmental message that the game is trying to make, because he says that it's never stopping snowing. It's just snowing continuously forever. Um, and he can't see the ground because of the huge smoke clouds from everybody's little inferno fireplace. Um, and so, like, every time he mentions, like, further snowstorms are coming, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there's this neighbor who you're talking to, and occasionally she'll send you a request, like, I ran out of money, but I really want to burn this thing. Can you order it for me and send it to me in the catalog? And you can. But it takes a really dark turn. I don't want to say too much in case anybody plays it. And I, I was really intrigued by it, but I really feel like I've played all the way through it, and the game writes a check it can't cash. It seems like it's making this big allegorical statement, and then I felt like the ending kind of fell flat and didn't completely address it. So while it was certainly a fun little game, a good little um, experimental-style indie game, it seemed like they were going to a point that they never reached, and that was a little bit frustrating. So, other technology notes... I don't know if anybody's been following E3. Uh, if you guys are all my friends, there are probably quite a few of you that have been following it. Um, and what I noticed was really interesting was how Sony handled the Microsoft debacle. Um, for those who don't know, both Microsoft and Sony have now unveiled their next-generation consoles. So... The new Xbox will be called the Xbox One. Uh, I'm not exactly certain why, uh, which, but it's sort of joked now that they're calling it the X-Bone, because uh, XB1 was sort of the shortened name of it. And it was a complete botch. Uh, and I think that it was a botch, not necessarily from a technology standpoint, but more from a PR standpoint. Um, there are lots of things that they've they could have handled better. It is not backwards compatible at all. Uh, you cannot share your games, even if they're on disk. So a game requires installation into your account, uh, and if somebody else tries to install your copy of the game into their account, from what I understand, it doesn't work, um, which also is kind of impeding on used games, and they haven't discussed whether or not there will be a fee if you buy a used game, so imagine that, you go to the store, you pick up a used game disc, you take it home, and then your Xbox says, we're going to need you to pay more money to be able to play it. Um, they've addressed almost none of these concerns, and also the hardware seems to be back to the old Microsoft way of vaporware. There have been some pictures now at E3 where they were working on the cabinets where they were demonstrating the Xbox Ones. And the Xbox One cabinet was open revealing a computer, which would actually be 
significantly more powerful than the hardware that they have boasted. So that essentially means that they're kind of lying about the hardware being available and ready. Um, It also requires an always-on connection, or at least it will connect to the internet as much as it wants to. It will continue to connect even when it's off. There's no setting to turn that off. And a lot of people are very frustrated with it. What's been interesting then is Microsoft's stock price, of course, dipped during this announcement, but not too much. I mean, it wasn't... It was a significant fall, of course. It was a significant shortfall, but it wasn't like into the toilet or anything because this company has a lot of other things going on. What was really weird was Sony's stock price almost doubled at the time of the announcement. And Sony really saw an opening because they came out later to kind of turn the screw down on their on Microsoft's thumb a little bit. So the PlayStation 4 uh, has been shown to have all these new, and I'm using air quotes here, features. For example, they have an instructional video where they... <laughs> It just has text on the screen and says, How to share a game with your friends on the PS4. And it shows one guy and he goes, Hey, you should play this game. And he hands a disc to another guy and the other guy says, Thank you! And that was the end of the thing. Um, But some of the other announcements on the PS4 have been a lot more surprising than that. Um, They aren't doing any of the used disc stuff. So... You don't have to install uh, games unless they require extra information in the hard drive, and there is no tracking of used games in that way. That doesn't avoid game developers themselves saying, okay, well, you know, you'll have one downloadable content if you buy the game as the first person, and it's a really important piece of content, and if you happen to be the second person, you'll have to pay more for it. Game developers can still get away with that shit, and that's unfortunate, but never mind that. Uh, That's not PlayStation's fault. Um, What was really shocking to me was they were advertising it and have confirmed it as being region-free. Now, what region-free means is most video game systems, uh, going as far back as the Nintendo, although with the Nintendo it was more a matter of the television technology was different. They were region locked. So if a game came out in Japan and it never came out here, you would need a Japanese version of the console in order to play it. And that's a way to make certain that people, A, don't sort of play the you know currency market using their games. Like, oh, I'll buy the Japanese version, it's just cheaper... Um, It also makes certain that they can keep a release schedule in differing countries. And that's a real frustration for gamers, because there have been a lot of great games. Uh, I mentioned last week all about the Final Fantasy games that were never released here in the United States. Um, But this has been something that all of the industry has held really tightly to, this region locking. The only exception to that seems to be portables. None of the portables seem to be region locked, but... That's a really big deal that PlayStation would suddenly shirk that and say, you know, games from any country can play on any PS4. So it kind of makes me wonder if there's this new marketing strategy of PlayStation 4 doing the Google thing of do no evil or just be the really good guy. Um, And I'll be curious to see how it plays out. Because last generation, PlayStation was the villain. Uh, last generation, the PS3 was over $500 at release. It had a lot of bugs with it. Um, they had features that were originally listed in the first run that they cut out because they were too expensive. For example, the first... Um, I think only the first model number of the PS3 could play PS2 games as well none of the later ones can, because in order to do that, they couldn't figure out how to software emulate it, so essentially there was all of the guts of a PlayStation 2 inside a PlayStation 3. Made it really expensive to build. Um, But all of these different things caused Sony to get a real black eye in the market. So this time around, I think that they're pushing really hard to make certain that um, 
not only are they not that character, but that they can pin that character onto Microsoft. But this region-free thing is kind of a radical choice for video game developers. So it'll be it'll be neat to see how it turns out. Um, and we're still a long way away. We haven't seen much of the hardware yet, so we we don't really know what the final hardware is going to be. Um, oh, and PS4 also undercut them on price, which I think was maybe a decision they were waiting on until after the Microsoft concert er, eh, concert release to make certain that they could be lower. Uh, movies and TV. Um, this is kind of spoilery, but it's also kind of well-known. It's reported by major newspapers, and if you've missed it, I apologize. You can skip um, the next five or so minutes, but I want to talk about Doctor Who. Um, so skip now if you are extremely spoiler-prone. But otherwise, this is something that you probably already know from the news. Matt Smith has quit Doctor Who, um, which was really shocking, because as early as a couple weeks ago, he was adamantly stating that he had no intention of quitting, he was going to be on the next season, and the next season is confirmed, so it's not that... The show is ending, it's just that Matt Smith's Doctor is ending. Um, And to get a little bit more spoilery, now here's the one where I can lose some listeners, but it's late in the podcast, so that's okay. Um, You guys can jump ship for about five or ten minutes as well if you haven't finished this season. So, at the end of the season, the Doctor goes to Trenzalore. Uh, which he knows he sort of prophesied to fall, air quote, there. And because of it, that sort of, that is his tomb. Like, they went to what is the Doctor's tomb, which apparently you're never supposed to go to as a time traveler, which if we've seen from the other shows, you know, crossing your own timeline can be a really, really bad thing, especially if you're as complicated as the Doctor is in time. So, they opened some really weird doors there. They explained Clara really, really well, which made me happy, because up until that point, I felt like Clara was a little bit too much of a not um, regular girl. I think I kind of had the same problem with Amy, where Amy was this extremely complicated event in space and time and raveled up in the silence's way of tricking the doctor and all this different kind of stuff. And, you know, it couldn't just be an audience surrogate. This wasn't a companion that we could relate to as people. And I felt like at least for season seven, they did the same thing with Clara. But at least they tied it off. And they tied it off in a way that Clara ends up not being exactly that. She becomes that through her actions, but not necessarily, like... It's not because she's special in a way that the audience could never be special. It's because she's a very brave person who makes very brave choices. So that was really cool. I like how they tied that off. But in the end, the Doctor knows that he dies sometime on this battlefield at Trenzalore, and Matt Smith has sort of hinted that more of his ending is going to be involving that. So it's really sad to see Matt go. Um, My only problem with Matt was that he wasn't David Tennant. And that's hardly fair because David Tennant was one of those once-in-a-generation style actors. Um, So if Dennett David... So does that mean if David Tennant is ever killed, another David Tennant will be called? Eh, don't worry about that. But he was he was a really spectacular actor. I feel like he immediately jumped into the shoes of the Doctor very, very well and had a solid grasp on it. And I don't think it's Matt's fault that he didn't end up exactly there because the writing demanded it. The writing demanded that the Doctor, in his case, more slowly acclimate to being in his own body. I think we get halfway through the fifth season before we see a doctor who's comfortable being the new man that he is. And I think a lot of that comes from how violent his previous regeneration had been. So Smith has been hilarious. Smith has been an amazing badass. Smith has been heart-wrenching. I think he's done an amazing job. 
And it's going to be really unfortunate to see him go because I just, I, I, every time, of course, we lose a doctor, it's like, well, I can't imagine anybody else taking that role. And then, you know, a season or so in, you're like, well, I don't really even remember the other guy. But that's going to be hard to see, I think. Matt Smith has really just done this wonderful job creating a character for himself out of the Doctor and sort of creating where he feels the Doctor would be after all of the pain Ten went through and after all of the pain of the Time War. So I do think it's an extremely fleshed-out character, and I think he's performed very admirably taking it on and just doing everything that he's going to do with it. And where I think... Most of the community is really going to miss him. Uh, other TV that I've been watching, um, Game of Thrones. Adrian got me into this. If you've read the books uh, and not seen the shows, then I'll just say this. Red Wedding. <laughs> yeah. It's... It's a good show. It's a really fascinating show as far as the political universe goes. Um, It's a hard show to watch because it takes the stance that all of these people are in war, no one is safe, and bad things are going to happen to people that you care about. Um, It does take time to take breaks and show us good things happening to people too, Um, but it it is rough. It is a rough series. A little bit spoilery if you haven't watched the first season all the way through, although not hugely. Um, So, please guys, like, skip the next five minutes. I promise I'll keep it to five minutes on this next part, um, starting now. But, has anybody else noticed that Game of Thrones very closely mirrors uh, the first book in the Dune series? If you think of the uh, Starks as the Atreides in Dune, so they're called away for political reasons, brought under people who they not they not only don't trust but are uh, family enemies of them. In the Dune series, we're talking the Harkonnens. In uh, Game of Thrones, we're talking the Lannisters. They're betrayed. The family members are scattered to the winds. Patriarchs are killed. Uh, one of the sons ends up having really advanced uh, psychic powers. I mean, all of this seems a lot like it is a nod to the Dune series, and I'm not sure if I'm the only one who feels that way, so I'd be curious to hear what people have to say about it. Um, I'll probably mention this at the end of the podcast, but if you corroborate my evidence or if you think that this that I'm on to something here, you can email me at bbcs at aaronmbond.com. That's Bad Brain Curio Shop, and the M is for Michael. Um, but yeah, it's... The whole, like, focus on the Starks and then sort of rearing back and then focusing on everybody else. So kind of treating the Starks like they are the stars of the show for a while and then moving back. And I'm not sure if the books did the same thing. But that feels very reminiscent of the storytelling in Dune as well. So I, I just wonder if George R. R. Martin, I believe that's his name, was inspired by Dune or if that was accidental or how exactly that turned out. But um, yeah, I can't think much about the Starks and the Lannisters without, without thinking of the Atreides and the Harkonnens. So... I really think there's a Dune tie there, but um, I'd be curious to see what you guys think about it. And if you haven't ever read Dune, um, I'd recommend it if you're a hardcore sci-fi fan. It's a difficult book. Uh, not difficult as in, like, oh, you're, you know, you got to be smart to read it. Like, all books should be, you know, a little bit of a challenge in that way, I think. But what's tricky about Dune is it's just a very... He gives you a lot of political background for his world. And because of that, it becomes really, really difficult to follow at times because he's jumping between so many different characters and so many heads of household and heads of state. That said, though, if you're into George R.R. Martin, again, I think his storytelling, at least in the show, 
is very similar to the storytelling of Dune and the story structure. So, again, Dune uh, versus Game of Thrones blogosphere. Tell me no. Let let me know what you think. Um, you could also send me a Twitter at badbraincurio. So. Let me let me know what you guys think of that. If that makes sense. If the Starks are the Atreides. Uh, another movie that I've uh, watched recently. Uh, Adrian finally showed me Django, um, which again I've mentioned before that I had a hard time with Tarantino in his past. I'm wondering if he's just evolved and changed his style in a way that I'm now a big fan. Um, Django was just an amazing film. Not only was the storyline and the character really well fleshed out, um, as well as the character of the Doctor, whom I absolutely loved, but it was, again, just gorgeous to watch, gorgeously shot. There was lots of uh, interspersed humor to keep you from feeling way too weighed down by the subject, because it very easily could have been um, a very weighty movie. It could have been the roots of our generation, which... And don't get me wrong, I think Roots has a place, but it Roots is very specifically difficult to watch. It is very specifically designed to to make that era become so real that it's hard to face what we did, and I think that serves a purpose, and Django serves a little bit of a different purpose than that, so I like the accessibility of it. I like the humor and... Um, the characterizations they do. Uh, apparently, again, I've not seen a ton of Tarantino. Uh, I've only seen, like, short snippets of Inglorious Bastards and really badly want to see that. Adrian says that we can rent that next. But um, apparently the character who plays the Doctor in it... Um, God, I can't think of his name. Uh, it escapes me at the moment, but he's in a lot of Tarantino films... And he's apparently almost always an evil bastard. Like in in Inglorious Bastards, he plays a Nazi, as uh, Brad Pitt apparently says. But he was just such a lovable character in this, which I think is kind of funny, considering since everybody else in the room, I watched it with my folks and with uh, Adrian, since everybody else in the room had seen Inglorious Bastards, there was sort of this sense of everybody was kind of waiting for him to betray the rest of the group, even the people who had seen Django before. So, really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. And for anybody who, like me, maybe hasn't been giving Tarantino's later movies a fair shake because the earlier movies didn't jive with you, his style has changed. His style has evolved to a kind of different type of movie while still keeping the old fans happy. So... I definitely think if you have shied away from Tarantino because you weren't very into, like, Reservoir Dogs or weren't into uh, Pulp Fiction, give him a second chance, especially on this movie. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, Very long, though. If you're going to watch Django, um, make sure you can either pause it or you haven't drank anything for the last hour and a half because bathroom breaks will be necessary. It's two hours and 45 minutes long, I believe. Um, And it doesn't feel that long just because the plot moves so well, but it it takes a big chunk out of your night if you decide to watch it, so just be ready for that. Um, Adrian also picked out another interesting one on Netflix that we watched one night called Safety Not Guaranteed. It was a really strange film... um, starring uh, one of Scott Pilgrim's exes. I can't remember the name of the woman, but she works for a tabloid newspaper in the show, um, and they find an ad, and the ad says, uh, needed two time travelers to go back in time, bring your own weapons, safety not guaranteed. I'm probably butchering that, but that was the basic gist of it. And her and her tabloid friends go to this small town and interact with this guy to see if he's crazy without letting them know letting him know that they're a tabloid newspaper and i might have to watch it a second time because it was it's a very strange film it's all about the interpersonal relationship about this guy and about her and 
people inherently not trusting each other because, you know, even just hearing that ad, you're like, okay, this is a crazy person. But is he? Is he? Is he not? Does it matter? Uh, and they explore a lot of that. Um, but the film was really good. Really, really good. And not at all what I expected it to be. So, uh, not that I expected it to be bad. I just expected it to be a very different experience than it ended up being. So... I'd recommend watching that one, too. That one's on Netflix, so you can really easily queue it if you're in that service. Uh, And if you're not, um, video stores are dying. Why are you not on Netflix yet? Anyway, so that's what I've been watching recently. Um, And that really kind of ties it off for me uh, tonight and with this week's podcast. Sorry that this is so late. Like I said, moving is still sucking, so... We've been crazy busy, and especially since we've had the trip home, uh, we lost a weekend to that, which may not have been the best strategic decision on my part, but it's taken up a lot of the time, so this is about a half a week late, and, you know, I said I'm sorry, that's the best I can do. I've got a really interesting quote for you this time. This one's even more obscure than the last. I'll be really impressed if anybody gets this one. So take a listen to this. Let me know if you know where this particular quote comes from. I'm going to need the character's name and the movie. So, give it a listen. Give me a Big Mac, fries, and tea to go, please. Pump frits. Fries are pump frits. Hmm. That's all we have for our show today. If you know the answer to our quote this week, email me at bbcs for Bad Brain Curio Shop at aaronmbond.com, the M is for Michael, or tweet me at Bad Brain Curio. Our show today was produced by Aaron Bond with production help from Aaron Bond, editing and sound engineering by Aaron Bond, extra promotional consideration by my friend at Rancor's brothel, Matt Etter whom I recently found trying to get the attention of friends who hadn't yet heard either of our podcasts. (coughs) 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 Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Intro and outro music provided by Latchi Swing. Hear more of their music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash L-A-T-C-H underscore swing. This podcast was recorded, produced, and distributed using open source technologies. The Bad Brain Curio Shop podcast is copyrighted 2013 and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 3.0 Unported License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.
Ira, if you're still listening, um, I hope you've enjoyed this homage, and I am completely available if you ever want to do some collaborative podcast work. See you next week, guys.